This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarter Bin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which I will select sort of at random. Any book from my comic book collection is eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents? Or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 127th episode of The Quarterbin, we're looking at Marvel Team-Up number 65 from Marvel Comics, of course, cover date January 1978. But first, a little feedback. On episode 125, we talked some Star Trek with super special guest Paul Spataro. That episode also featured the irredeemable shags manifesto-like email screed, and that generated some feedback all by itself. My response to that included the phrase, quote, I'm not naked, I'm cosplaying Batman, unquote, which Karen, from between the pages, said was the best laugh she'd had all month, which was very sweet. And Shag defended himself on that, saying, it's all true, that's a legitimate form of cosplay. And I had to waste a quarter on my one phone call to dictate that email, too. Well, Shag, we all appreciate that you're so committed, and we appreciate that you have been committed. David Ace Gutierrez raised an interesting point about my description of that episode. A contribution from Shag? Are you trying to court listeners or lose them? You see, Dave, my thinking was that the presence of Paul Spatero on that episode, his gravitas, would balance out the risk of featuring Shag in his email. Paul also gives me some legal litigious cover should Shag's presence cause, you know, issues. Now, before that, we covered Dakota North, and Rafe York had a few things to say about that lady and her comic. Hello, Professor Allen. I remember seeing the house ads for Dakota North and being impressed by the art. It was unlike the comic art I was accustomed to. It seemed more sophisticated. I was 13 at the time, so my concept of sophisticated was a little underdeveloped. I built an expectation that the stories would also be different, daring, edgy, adult. I bought the entire series off the rack and was disappointed that it didn't live up to what I wanted it to be. While the cover art still impressed me, the interiors didn't hold up. The story wasn't daring or edgy. It just seemed, well, unremarkable and kind of goofy. Obviously, I wasn't so disappointed that I gave up on the series. Like I said, I kept buying it. But I've never felt the urge to return to it after my initial reading. But since it earned your approval, I may have to give Dakota North another try if I ever get through my Heroes Con purchases. Well, Rafe, I certainly hope you found the five for a dollar area at Heroes Con. And always remember, and this you know goes to Rafe and to everybody, that my enthusiasms for an issue or a title are largely based on that magical 25 cent price point. I certify no story or no issue if it has been purchased at a higher price. And since time is money, the time spent reading the darn things, that is also a consideration. 
But thanks for listening, Rafe. It is always good to hear from you. In last episode, we talked about the time traveling of Ivar in Time Walker, and Sir Sir Martin of Grey was able to tie a few episodes together. Oh, another great episode from the show that loves private eyes, like Virginia West. Okay, Sir Martin, that was one heck of a tweet. And from Luke Giaconetti, who said that he was always eager to hear a show about a classic Valiant comic. And after the episode, he sent in a longer bit of feedback. Professor, just finished listening to episode 126 covering Time Walker. And as a noted fan of Valiant comics, I wanted to write in. The three brothers, Ivar, Aram, and Gilad, are important characters in both the original Valiant Universe launched in 1991 and the modern one launched in 2012. The titles, Eternal Warrior and Archer and Armstrong, were both launched as part of the Unity event, which is generally regarded as one of the best crossover events of all time, and were mainstays in the line. Ivar was more of a supporting character, but did get his starring turn as well. In the modern Valiant U, Archer and Armstrong was a launch title, and the brothers all appeared in flashbacks. In the first issue, although Eternal Warrior is properly introduced in issue 5, and then Ivar a few months later. Ivar would get his own title series in 25 for 12 issues, which is highly recommended. Now that I did mention, I believe that is the Fred Van Lenty run. That series, Luke continues, referring to Ivar, Time Walker, introduced the character Nila Sethi, who goes on to become very important in the Valiant U as well. There are some differences between the original and the modern versions. The origin you described, with the boon and the far away, is the modern version. In the original, the three brothers were simply naturally occurring immortals. And if there was ever an explanation as to why, I don't remember it. In any event, I very much liked this issue mostly to see Valiant get some love. Too often Valiant is lumped in with Image and countless other small press publishers as quote, that 90s crap, unquote. But the vast majority of their books, Valiant's books, are solid to strong comics, with some really great stuff thrown in there as well. Valiant was a story-driven company for much of its existence, at least until Acclaim bought them, and they engender a lot of fan loyalty because of it. Same goes for their modern books. Valiant has been my favorite comics publisher since 2012. Thanks for covering Time Walker, and looking forward to everything else coming down the line, Luke. Well, thank you, buddy. It is always good to hear from you. Luke, of course, a co-host on the Vault of Startling Monster Horror, Tales of Terror, over on the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Jim, the Canada Daredevil, reported that Time Walker was a fun series. And Dr. Ange checked in, even as his successful year-long tenure of Listener of the Year is approaching its end. Like you, I'm a big fan of time travel stories, especially when characters meet each other multiple times. In Grant Morrison's JLA run, the robot Hourman meets the Kyle Rayner GL and says something along the lines of, this is the first time you're meeting me, but this is not the first time I am meeting you. It's just perfect. I also saw it play out nicely with the Brainiac 5 slash Supergirl romance during the Sterling Gates run. The first time she met him was a new Krypton, 
but the first time he met her was later in her life and earlier in his. Wonderful, Dr. Ange. How about that, Dr. Ange? Award-winning Supergirl blogger managed to bring in the Girl of Steel to his comment, because of course he did. And from Nathaniel Wayne of the Council of Geeks, which is to say, he is the Council of Geeks, who sent an email entitled, Time Wanker. Dear Professor, first, no, I won't apologize for that subject line. You got the title wrong on the episode listing. I get to have it wrong to greater comedic effect in my response. He is right. At least at somewhere I called episode 126 that we were covering Time Walker 126. Not much to say about the issue itself, Nathaniel goes on, sounds like a solid enough premise. So instead, let's leap into talking about time travel in general. Like you, I tend to really shake my head when people try to insist that's not how time travel works. Much like vampires, or magic, or interstellar travel, every story is allowed to set its own rules for the fantastical. A story only, quote, gets it wrong when it breaks the rules that it, or in the case of a franchise, its predecessor, has laid out. Which is why I still haven't been able to finish Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. These were not the rules you were losing before! But what can those rules be? Well, there's the branching realities approach, like the Star Trek reboot movie, where a change doesn't erase the original, but creates a new and separate timeline. There's the single changeable timeline, probably the most common, where whatever changes you make ripple out and alter the reality of the single established timeline. Time Cop is a good go-to example. The effects of changes aren't immediate element that you mentioned would be a subset of this. And then there's the malleable rules employed by Doctor Who, where some things you can't change and some it really doesn't matter and you don't make the rules all that clear because that just limits what you can do later as storytellers. Basically only the case in long-running franchises that keep using time travel. But my favorite, Nathaniel says, is also the one that's the hardest to pull off. The single timeline where nothing changes. The first story I remember seeing this in was 12 Monkeys, but I've seen it extremely well-employed since then in the likes of The Time Traveler's Wife, Great Book, Meh Movie, Predestination, and Primer. I love the mind-bending nature of the concept that you can't go back and change history because history's already happened with you from the future as part of those events. It only ever happened one way. You're not changing it by going back. You're just playing the role that you always had in the one version of time that does exist. I find it the most philosophically rich as well, where the how-we-change-things angles lend themselves to moral dilemmas. Thanks for another lovely listening experience. Geekily yours, Nathaniel Wayne. P.S. I forgot to do feedback on your Star Trek episode. Again, that was 125 with Paul Spatero. But Nathaniel really had one thing to say. Stop saying Data's name wrong. I default to the android himself when he corrected somebody that his name is pronounced Data, not Data. And when asked what the difference was, he said, One is my name. The other is not. Respect the android. 
many of Nathaniel's notions that you have heard expressed in feedbacks over the years, both here and on Dorkness Delight, are easy to ignore due to their general nuttiness. But on this one, he has a point, and I will try. We also heard again from Rafe York, who wrote in not just about this issue, but also about a memorable recent comic shopping experience. Dear Professor Allen, I was a skeptic. I thought quarter bins were nothing more than the stuff of myth and legend akin to the Loch Ness Monster, Bigfoot. But then, on a recent trip to Omaha, I stopped into the Dragon's Lair comic store. And as I prepared to take my meager pile of back issues to the counter to check out, something flashed out of the corner of my eye. I slowly turned, and there it was, taped to the front of a wooden bin the size of a long box, a sign written in black Sharpie on cardboard, 25 cent comics. And this is where that famous baseball call rings in Rafe's ears. I do not believe what I just saw. And of course, having just seen Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster, Rafe dove right in. Darkman, one to three. I never got around to seeing the movie, but what the heck? They're a quarter. Exactly! That is the spirit of the quarter bins. The Bionic Woman from Charlton? Well, that's a no-brainer. Some issues of Miss Fury from Dynamite. How bad could they be? I have yet to read any of the books I bought, but even if they're terrible, it's good to know that quarter bins do exist. And of course, as we said before, I think on your email, Rafe, you are allowed to lower your standards of acceptability when you only pay 25 cents for a comic book. Rafe continues. <laughs> I listened to Quarterbin 126 on the drive home from Omaha. And again, you've produced an excellent episode. Thank you. Rafe reports that he was a little late getting into Valiant during the 90s. Missed out on the first wave of titles, Harbinger. Magnus Solar and Exo Manowar. But I was all in for their second wave Archer and Armstrong, Eternal Warrior, Shadow Man, and the legendary Turok Dinosaur Hunter. Of those books, I preferred the ones that focused on the Anipata brothers. When they announced a third such title, Time Walker, I added it to my pull list. It was never as good as the other two, but I still enjoyed it enough to amass a complete run. Like you, I enjoy time travel stories, and while Time Walker offered nothing memorable, no, really, your synopsis of issue one rang no bells. They were fun enough to keep reading. I think I liked the concept of the three Immortal Brothers better than the execution of their three titles. Each had his own unique personality and approach to immortality, but they were all basically good people. I would have liked Valiant to place Gilad, Aram, and Ivar at the center of its universe, but unfortunately, that spot was already assigned to the stars of the first wave titles. Thank you for that affirmation, Rafe, and to anyone who has ever doubted, mostly Stella. See, I'm not a liar. Quarter bins do exist. Mike Lane noted that he heard me call him out 
for not having done any Kirby Cast episodes for a while, which I did assure him was a comment I made out of love. He said that the episode was great and that he was anticipating following that advice very soon and that he appreciated the encouragement to get back to the Kirby cast, which is good because that is exactly how I meant that comment. And the last bit of feedback I have to cover is again from Sir, Sir Martin of Grey, in which he calls into question something I have said on this podcast more than once, more than twice, probably 126 times. And that is, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. Shouldn't it be, Martin asked, at the quarter bin? Or near the quarter bin? Or maybe by the quarter bin? As some of you may know, Sir Sir Martin is a professional reporter and newspaper editor. And like all editors, he is very, very, very picky about words. And although any of his suggestions are technically more feasible, because yes, long boxes may be a little crowded for a meeting at any price point, I maintain the right of poetic license. And I'm very comfortable in continuing to invite you all to join me in the quarter bin. Those recent episodes received social media love from Chris from Bat Books for Beginners, Ed Moore of Teal Productions, Rad Adventures, that's the Sutherlands, Pat from the Long Box Crusade, Comic Reviews by Walt, Slang Word Scott, Brad Haggat, Comics in the Golden Age, Gene Gene the Podcasting Machine Hendrix from the Hammer Strikes, Sean from the Nerdy Dads Podcast, Gal Walks Into a Comic Shop, Big Easy 777, The Trekonomics Trekbot, guess which episode they retweeted, Jared West, Clinton from Coffee and Comics, Old School Ross, Chris Willette, Vinny, Gene Freddy II, J. Jones Goldstein, Logan Garrett, Matt McKeegan, The Kirby Cast, Robert Ludwig, the most sane man among us, The Collected Edition, The Creator Talks Podcast, Al Sedano, and Laurel, a.k.a. Mountain Flower One, from Feathers and Foes. I really appreciate all the feedback we hear at Relatively Geeky Value, those contributions. Em and I consider this whole podcasting feed to be one long, ongoing conversation, and that's why we often do feedback at the start of episodes to demonstrate the priority that we put on your contributions. So thank you for that. And feedbackers, we know, are just a small portion of the listenership, and to me, they're representatives of the whole of the listener base. So know that in thanking them... I do thank all of you listeners. Now, it's possible I'm still on a little bit of a pumpkin pie-fueled high with the idea of thankfulness and gratefulness still on my mind. But again, thank you. So let's take a break here, and when we come back, we've got an issue of Marvel Team-Up to talk about. Hey, Gene, we should do a podcast. Sounds like a great idea, Jeff, but what will we talk about? How about a superhero that we both love? Perfect! Some like Thor or Captain America? 
both great choices, but um, I think they're being covered by somebody else already. Wait, I've got it. What about the protector of the universe? Like Voltron? No, no, no. The guy with the jewelry that lets him create whatever he wants. Ah, Green Lantern, nice. Close. No, this guy has cosmic awareness. Captain Marvel? Almost. I mean, Quasar. Ah, oh, Quasar. Who doesn't love a good Quasar? Tune in to the Quantum Cast, covering all things Quasar. Yes, that's right. You can find us at quantumbands.blogspot.com. And on the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Yeah, that, that didn't sound scripted at all, did it? And we're back. Marvel Team-Up. At a cover price of 35 cents, meaning I acquired this comic at a, I mean, not even 30% markdown off that original price. I mean, I know it's a little early for this, but bah, humbug. The cover by George Perez, Joe Sinnott, and Annette Kowecki shows Spidey and special guest Captain Britain battling on a steel girder at a construction site. At last, Marvel's British superhero sensation explodes on the stateside scene. And guess who was caught in the blast? So even though the book has the phrase team-up in the title, of course, it's a Marvel book. So our two heroes are fighting. The story, Introducing Captain Britain, was written by Chris Claremont with art by John Byrne and Dave Hunt. No pressure, but there's a lot of talent on this story, fellas. In the interest of full disclosure, the synopsis at the Marvel Wikia site was used as a jumping-off point for the synopsis that follows. And we start with Spidey swinging himself across the city in a hurry, because he overslept and is late for an appointment with the Dean of Students. It's that old Peter Parker luck, just as bad as ever. And despite his best efforts, Peter ends up showing up to the appointment an hour late. Just as an aside, I've had lots of meetings with deans and associate deans, and I don't think I've ever been an hour late to one of them. Well, fortunately, Pete is not in trouble. The dean wanted to speak to him to introduce him to Brian Braddock, an exchange student from Thames University in England. The dean explains that he's asking Peter to board Brian at his apartment, which Peter is not all that wild about, but among the mountains of paperwork that Peter signed when he got his scholarship was a consent form to allow ESU to farm out foreign students to ESU attendees that have their own apartments. After hearing that he's entitled to a $50 a week payment in the deal, Peter accepts it, but is concerned that taking in Brian could possibly compromise his secret identity as Spider-Man. But he is committed. Come on, Bri. I'll introduce you to the gang down at the Coffee Bean. Meanwhile, at London's Heathrow Airport, where members of the British branch of the Magia have sought out the International Assassin Arcade. And though they find the man to be a stranger, they hire him to carry out an order to kill Brian Braddock. 
their computers indicate that he is one of a number of people who may be the superhero Captain Britain. Our own people will handle the targets in the UK and Europe, but Braddock is in New York, and we felt that using an American uh, mechanic for the job would be more appropriate. They are unaware that they are being spied on by a mysterious woman who says she can handle the hits planned for England. But the Braddock boy, I'm afraid he's on his own. Back in America, back in Peter Parker's Chelsea pad, he checks to see if Brian is asleep before changing to Spidey and going into action for the night. However, Brian is a bit restless, and between that and the jet lag, he's unable to fall asleep. When he's called to the window by the sound of a speeding fire truck, he spots Spider-Man swinging out of Peter's bedroom window, and he finds Peter's room empty. Not being sure if Spider-Man is a hero or a villain, he makes a actually pretty reasonable assumption. No one seems to be sure if he's a good guy or not, but no one runs like that unless he's got something to hide. He's moving like lightning, too. Brian Braddock, or the police, if I took the time to ring them, hasn't a prayer of catching him. But Captain Britain has! And the living legend who in his brief career has faced gods and goddesses, avengers, agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., angry cops, and more villains than you can shake a stick at. Attacks Spider-Man. He actually catches the wall crawler completely off guard, and to the surprise of nobody who has ever read an issue of Marvel Team-Up or any issue of Marvel Comics where characters, you know, team up, a fight ensues. Spider-Man is instantly on the defensive and retreats for a bit from Captain Britain in order to get a measure of the man's abilities. Noting that Captain Britain's powers are derived from his star scepter, Spider-Man tricks him into following him into a skyscraper construction site where there's a lot less chance of any innocent bystanders getting clobbered. This is also a huge home field advantage for old Webhead, who manages to snag the scepter with a web line. Spider-Man then saves Captain Britain before he can fall to his death. Spider-Man explains that he works with Peter Parker, quote-unquote, by giving him exclusive photos for the Daily Bugle. This little bit of truth-stretching appeases Captain Britain, and they both chalk up the attack to Britain being a novice superhero. However, during the fight, Spidey did notice that Cappy talks just like Brian Braddock. I'm not saying that sounds kind of racist, or nationist, or classist, or geographicist. That's pretty weird. A British superhero coming after me the same day I get a British roomie? Okay, well now that's some logic. That I'm willing to accept. He wonders if someone up there just hates him. 11,000 students at ESU, and I'm the one who gets stuck with a superhero for a roommate. Sheesh. After they've reached their temporary truce, Captain Britain explains his origins to Spider-Man, starting with how he was sought out by a criminal known as the Reaver. Trying to escape the Reaver's men on motorcycle, Brian was forced to drive off a cliff, ending up in a horrible crash. And he heard a voice calling to him, calling to him to come near the beauty of the green earth and the white moon, the mysteries of the waters and the desires of the heart of man. Welcome to the Siege Perilous 
Brian Braddock. Welcome home. His surroundings vanished in a flare of eye-searing white light. There he was confronted by Merlin and the Lady of the Northern Skies. Thou are in a most ancient circle of power, and thou art to be judged on peril of thine immortal soul. That was from Merlin, and the Lady assures him that they are not phantoms and this be no dream. As in days long past, the people of this land we cherish need a champion, a symbol, a paladin who will stand for the values and beliefs that transcend time. Be that champion, Brian Braddock. They explain that they have come to him as a test of faith, to see if he is worthy of being a champion against villains such as the Reaver. Brian questions whether Albion has outgrown the need for that sort of symbol, and he finds himself at the end of Merlin's wrath. But the good cop, I mean the lady, says that he must be given a choice. We offer thee great power, but also a great responsibility. All you needst do to achieve it is choose the mystic talisman, the sword, or the amulet. Now, Brian is a scholar, not a warrior. If I'm to remain true to myself, there's only one choice I can make, the amulet. He felt the lady smile approvingly in his mind, and then screamed as his body was consumed by a star-born bolt of the purest energy. And thus he found himself transformed into Captain Britain, the champion of the land, who had many adventures clashing with various supervillains before coming to America. The two heroes decide to duck into hiding as a police dispatch led by Captain Jane DeWolf speeds through the area after reports of the fight between Spider-Man and Captain Britain had been called into police. But on the last half of the last page, they are ambushed by Arcade and his minions who capture the heroes in a specially rigged garbage truck. DeWolf sees the truck in the area and approaches and asks the garbage men if they've seen Spidey and another super dude, big blonde fell, all in red with a gold lion on his chest. Nope, Arcade tells her before pulling away. I haven't seen a thing. Not one blessed thing. Next issue, Murder World, where nobody ever survives. The End. Hello, everyone. I'm Al Sedano, host of Resurrections and Adam Warlock and Thanos Podcast. Over the last few years, this show has covered Adam's life, from his early appearances in Fantastic Four and Four to his run as Space Jesus on Counter-Earth. Now, we have made it midway through the 1970s and Jim Starlin's iconic run on the character. The Magus. Gamora, Pip the Troll, and Adam finally meeting Thanos. Speaking of Thanos, we haven't forgotten about him. We will soon be starting our coverage of Starlin's hardcover graphic novel, The Infinity Relativity, starring Thanos. So join me, along with my regular co-hosts, John Wilson and Brian Zeno, as well as others, on Resurrections and Adam Warlock and Thanos Podcast. Found on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. Resurrections Adam Warlock.tumblr.com.
And we're back. And let me say this to friends and listeners from across the pond in the UK. You're welcome. Because I considered reading Brian Braddock's and other Brits' lines in my finest English accent. But I didn't. Out of respect. You're welcome. Off the top of my head, I think it's possible the only times I've run across Captain Britain were in those Excalibur issues that I covered with Mark Adams on the epic, epic, epic Quarterbin 100. And then at least two decades before that in the Knights of Pendragon series, of which I have very positive memories. But my recollections of the captain himself, especially in this particular costume, are pretty far back in the mists of time. And given my general level of Anglophilia, this is an oversight on my part. I admit that. Some of my favorite fictional characters of all time are Brits. Holmes, Winnie the Pooh, James Bond. But I've read very little Captain Britain. Now, in terms of a costume for the Captain, I much prefer the red, white, and blue version with the Union Jack head mask. I much prefer that to this almost all-red bodysuit with a little blue piping and a gold lion rampant on the chest. I like the lion, truth be told, but the worst part is the blonde hair flowing free from the red and blue face mask. That look only works for some characters, and Brian Braddock is not one of those characters. The blue across the jaw and the front of the face, that is just not good. Meh, but it was the 70s, so let's just leave it at that, okay? Oh, but before we move on completely from the design of Captain Britain, let me just point out that the scepter, that looks great. Now, as I said before, there's a ton of young talent on this book, Claremont and Byrne in 1977. They're each about 26 or 27 years old at the time, and they're bringing all of that youthful energy to this story. I really like the Marvel comics of this age, sort of the mid-70s up until maybe close to 1990. I love what Stan Lee did at the start of the Marvel Age of Comics, but those stories do seem to belong to a different age in terms of style and of the, just the stories that are being told. But these books, the 70s and 80s, maybe the second wave of Marvel, or certainly the third wave of Marvel writers that hit around this era, this really is a sweet spot for me. They are a little more modern than Stan and maybe even Roy Thomas, but we are before the era where artists took over completely, in other words, where, where writers still mattered. And then, of course, it was way before decompression and all of that. So this is a nice sweet spot for me. You get wordy stories, no doubt about that. Stories that take a good 15 or 20 minutes or so to read, but stories without the bombast and other stylistic uh, things from clearly in the 60s. I don't want to reveal my final verdict, but one of the considerations in determining what a comic is worth is how long it took to read. The promo for this very podcast mocks the notion of the $4 comic that you can read in four minutes. Chris Claremont rarely wrote a comic that you could read in four minutes. He occasionally wrote pages that you could not read in four minutes. And where I come from, that's a good thing. And a lot of that stuff that I included from the text, you heard it. It's solid stuff. 
He gives the Arthurian aspects of the story a sense of import, but does not go over the top, which would be very easy to do. I like that Merlin and the lady quibble a bit, that there seems to be some history to their relationship. We don't get anything about that. There's no details, of course. But the way that those two relate to each other, just through dialogue, you know that something's there, and that's a hallmark of good writing. And in those pages of overly serious stuff, you really risk losing the reader by telling a pretty extended three or four page flashback origin of the guest star, who you might not have heard of before if you're just grabbing your books off the spinner rack. This is Brian's first appearance in a U.S. Marvel book. But what Claremont does, just as he might be losing the Spidey fan, is make a great Spidey reference. Out of the blue, you heard it, the lady offers Brian great power and also great responsibility. This is a serious moment and a pretty serious issue, but that one line, when I got to it, I actually LOL'd out loud. And that's exactly what was needed at that point. And I liked Grumpy Merlin. Grumpy wizards have become a bit of a fantasy trope these days, but I don't know if they were back in 1977. But in general, I am a fan of the legend of that character, his role in all things Arthurian, and the little bit we get of him here, in all of his crankiness, I really dug that characterization. Especially when Brian questioned whether a hero, a symbol, was still needed. Merlin did not like being questioned, and I liked that about him. My recollection of the Madame Xanadu title that Matt Wagner did in 2008 that I covered back in episode 94 of this very podcast. My recollection was that that Merlin was also a little prickly. Again, I like that characterization of that character. Claremont is confident in his writing, and he just seems in complete control of the script. And we joked about it, everyone jokes about it, but we all know that the two heroes would have to have a knockdown drag out before the actual teaming up part of the story could occur. So what we have to ask is, how well was that accomplished? And with Spidey, you actually have a built-in reason for a character who's just meeting him to not trust him. And that's JJJ. You have a purveyor of hashtag fake news baked right into the narrative. And so whenever someone, anyone, first meets Spidey, it's reasonable to be cautious at the very least. And when you see this guy of questionable reputation bounding out the window of your roommate with your roommate missing, it's not a crazy conclusion to jump to that maybe Spidey did the boy some harm. So I like that. There was reasonable groundwork laid for the fight, as inevitable as that fight was. And the art, I certainly don't want to ignore that. The art is solid as well, Burn gets a chance to draw Spidey swinging around the city, and he does that well. It's dynamic. And the fight on the construction site is really well done. In that set piece, there's a lot of opportunities for the characters to fight in very gymnastic type of styles, girders that they can balance on or swing from or dive off of. Lots of good stuff there. I do need to talk about Arcade a little bit as well, even though we don't get a lot from him in this issue. Like Captain Britain, by the way, this is also Arcade's U.S. Marvel debut. After only one U.K. appearance in his case. I don't have the next issue of this title, 
but that is the first U.S. appearance of Murder World. And it's pretty hard to separate those two things, arcade and Murder World. Now, I don't know a ton about Marvel history, but my impression is that arcade didn't really become a thing, or at least a big thing, until early in this decade. The era of Avengers Academy, Avengers Arena, Avengers Undercover. It makes sense when you think about it, where you have the Hunger Games as the new hotness, and Marvel realizes they have a character custom-built for that. Uh, Not for ripping off, not for stealing, let's just go with a chance to cash in on a craze. And so they did. And so Arcade, for a brief period, was kind of a big deal at Marvel, I think. But I only know about that character by reputation. It's possible I haven't read anything with him or Murder World in it, at least in any significant way. And he's not even a character in the Spider-Man Unlimited iOS game I play. So I have zero knowledge of the character. Except, I guess, what David Arrington talks about when he covered some of those Avengers books a few years back on Helix Reviews. But what we get here, like I said, is pretty minimal. A guy in a crazy throne-like seat in a white suit. Has the makings for an interesting character, I suppose. The Verdict. On Marvel Team-Up 65, it's actually a pretty significant issue, I suppose, the U.S. debuts of both Captain Britain and Arcade. I don't think of Marvel Team-Up being a title with significant issues, with historical uh, issues, with important debuts. But maybe this is more common than I think. I don't know. But either way, this wasn't just a significant issue. It was a pretty good one. Talk about Marvel Team-Ups. How about the team-up of Chris Claremont and John Byrne? That was a team-up that worked. And I don't know this for a fact, but I doubt that they got into a fistfight before working on the issue. But however this came to be, this was a very solid Bronze Age Marvel comic. I enjoyed this a bunch. No doubt about it, this is a definite quarter bin deal. That wraps up our coverage of Marvel Team-Up 65, bringing episode 127 of the podcast to a close. Next time, after covering a random Marvel book, this episode, then a random indie last episode, next time we'll get a random DC. And the book that the randomizer selected was The Last Days of the Justice Society special from, like I said, DC Comics, cover dated 1986. If you have any questions or comments about this issue or the episode or the podcast in general, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. The Quarter Bin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at Relatively Geeky Podcast. .blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening. Sir!